You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 30, Student Mental Health. When most people think about mental health problems, they think of serious psychiatric diseases. But the concept is really much broader than that. Mental health is about your mental well-being in general, and many people struggle with it in bigger or smaller ways. Today, Kim and I are gonna talk about mental health in an area we see in our jobs, the mental health of students. So Kim, what got you interested in studying student mental health? Well, I've been at Carleton now 12 years, and I, you know, that's a fair, you've seen the opportunity to see a sort of a generational change in the student population. And I have seen that there are increasingly what I observe is, um, you know, mental health challenges, right? So everything from the, the more day-to-day struggles of being in academia in a university environment to more serious and severe mental health challenges and what i've come to observe as well is that it the students wellness is very much it impacts their academic success you know if a student is not doing well outside of the classroom they're really not going to do well inside of the classroom and as somebody who is, you know, I'm a teaching faculty, a lot of what I do is around ensuring that students uh, enjoy my lectures, they come to class prepared, they feel a certain amount of adequate challenge. And so I've started to really develop more of a critical lens and critical critical inquiry around trying to understand more fulsomely what is the challenge of student mental health and how specifically it impacts uh, students' academic outcomes. So there must be scientific studies of this. What are some of the statistics around students and how they experience mental health? Yeah, so there are, you know, there's, it's not just me who's looking at this. There's a number of of folks out there that study student mental health. And in particular, there are a lot of, um, you know, government statistics around this. But the estimates say around a fifth of university students have a diagnosed mental health or substance use disorder. Uh, And that's what they would have experienced over the last 12 months. The lifetime. is This is Canada? Uh, that's U.S. Um, and there are some more Canadian statistics, which I'll touch on in a second. But these are more uh, the, we can p- pretty much acknowledge that U.S. statistics and Canadian statistics tend to be quite similar. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, this is about two years ago, they updated the statistics and it's more like one in three. Um, for more specific Canadian statistics, um, and this is last year, so spring in 2019, about half of Canadian students, a little over 50%, said they had felt so depressed it was difficult to function, and closer to 70% felt overwhelming anxiety within the last 12 months. And these are pretty uh, startling statistics. This, you know, This is a fair chunk. It's the majority of our student population that are experiencing these symptoms. And then even more worrying, um, in the same uh, year, uh, a, a survey showed that about a s- little less than 17% of Canadian st- students reported seriously considering suicide in the last 12 months. Um, and this is very worrisome because suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth aged 15 to 24, and that's according to StatsCan. Now, you've been doing some of this research yourself, right? So it, it does this, um, the, the kind of studies you've just mentioned, do they relate to the data that you've collected? They do. Um, and I have to say, I, you know, there are a few colleagues in my department that have been studying this quite systematically uh, over the last decade or two, and that's Jaime Anisman and Kim Matheson, uh, have been studying student mental health 
for a great number of years. And more recently, I've kind of taken it up with another one of my colleagues, Robin McQuaid, who's currently a scientist at the Royal Ottawa Institute for Mental Health Research. And Robin and I have been collaborating over the last few years to study how the contemporary, you know, what do the contemporary numbers look like? And one of our more recent studies, what we did was we had students complete a number of surveys. Um, so they come into the lab and they, they do a number of questionnaires that assess things like depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms, among other things. And what we see, and this kind of represents the statistics I was just saying earlier, is about 40% of students are completely asymptomatic. They don't show any uh, symptoms of depression or anxiety. Well, actually, the anxiety statistics are a bit different. But um, what this means is that on our major scale, which is called the Beck Depressive Inventory, um, many of the 40% are not showing any symptoms. And then the remaining balance are showing mild, moderate or severe depression. And importantly, we do see significant sex differences. And this is something that's repeatedly found in the literature is that females on average, show higher rates of depressive symptoms relative to males. And this is also matched with formal diagnoses. So women are about twice as likely to get a diagnosis of depression relative to males. Now, when we look at suicidality, um, lifetime suicide ideation, so that's thinking about suicide, um, maybe even having a plan for suicide in the past, about 50% of our students have had lifetime suicidal ideation and a quarter have experienced this in the last 12 months. With suicide attempts, we see about 10%, a little over 10% have lifetime suicide attempt history in a, in a very small proportion, thankfully, but still represents uh, a fair number of our students have experienced, have attempted suicide in the past 12 months. Now, these are a bit higher. Um, this is, we would say this is, you know, in, in our one recent study, this is a, represents a highly depressed sample. Uh, and it could be that we're attracting more students that are experiencing depressive symptoms right. um, because of the study, right? So the nature of the study. So uh, these data are not yet published. I just want to make sure that folks are aware <laughs> that this is, uh, we haven't yet published these data, but um, this is a more, re the, one of the, uh, these are data from a recent study that we ran in the fall. I heard, and tell me if you know about this, that um, you also might get slightly different numbers depending on whether it's like the beginning or the end of the semester. Correct. And we do see temporal changes in depressive and anxious symptoms, for sure. We see them peak around exam time and kind of decline uh, throughout the, the academic term and then again um, rise again with the next semester. Wow. So yes, you do see sort of seasonal patterns. And it's hard to say, like we would interpret that some of that being with uh, university stress, which I'll talk about shortly, but it also is reflective of general seasonal patterns in depressive and anxious symptoms um, yeah. more generally. You know, when people, you know, there's some people dismiss psychology as a science. I mean, they really don't know what they're talking about, of course. But um, I always I like to point out that psychology is really hard in many ways that other scientists or other sciences aren't. Like if you're doing particle physics, you don't have to worry about what time of the semester you're running your study. <laughs> because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, the students like uh, first year students, they tend to like break up with their high school boyfriend or girlfriend all around the same time. And like they can mess up your you can mess up a study on arithmetic yeah. even, you know, so it's it's such a complicated yeah. thing. And I do want to point out that it, it, it can be very difficult to get the ethical approval to run these kinds of studies, right? This is a, you know, when we do human research, we need to be prepared, right? So I have right. a certificate that says that I have done training that recognizes the the 
sort of vulnerabilities um, of working with humans. And, you know, it's no, no slight that that's what has to happen, right? So sometimes mm. when we put studies in to get ethical approval, particularly if we're asking students about suicidal ideation and suicide right. risk, you know, it, it can take us like several months to get ethical approval to ensure that we have really considered fulsomely the risk uh, associated with doing these studies. Yeah. Uh, so are right, you you just said a whole lot of numbers, but let's just let me just summarize. Like if I'm teaching a class of 100 university students, how many of them are having like worrisome depressive symptoms? About 60 of those students. Oh my goodness. That's terrible. That's like a mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah, for sure. And about half of them will have experienced suicide in in their life and a quarter of them have felt that in the last so, you know, 50 wow. students and then okay, 25 so, students. Yeah. Yeah. So so the university obviously should be concerned with this. Like what, 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 how, how, how do re- universities respond to this kind of thing? Well, it's an interesting question. And I think um, certainly there's been, I want to say, some pushback from, and I'm not saying this from the senior administration, but certainly from the professoriate. So folks that are teaching the students to say, this is not our problem, right? And and I'm not saying this is universal, but there is pushback to say, you know, it's not our, our concern to respond to the problem of student mental health. We're here to deliver courses. But I say the time for that is long gone. We need to get our head out of the sand and say, this, this is part of our problem. As a professor, we need to be concerned about this because the data are very clear. Students are more likely to perform academically, remain at their institutions, and graduate uh, if they have contact with on-campus counseling services, if they uh, receive supportive care for their mental health concerns. And in particular, we know that their their the professors can be a major touch point to uh, get accessing care, right? We're the ones that see, you know, the, the, well, yeah, we are the ones that students see most often, right? They're, they're coming to class regularly. They develop some kind of relationship with us. Um, and so we need to be uh, mental health literate and we need to be able to, to be willing to step up and say, I am here to support you academically and as a, as a human, right? We know that first-year students are particularly vulnerable, right? They're the ones that are, for many of them, transitioning to university. So the transition period is is quite stressful because they're adapting to a whole other culture. They're adapting to university life. Um, uh, they've left behind their social supports, many of them mm. who may be coming to a new city, right? Uh, international students that are adapting to a whole new country, a whole new customs. Right. Uh, you know, I, I always <laughs> am so sad for our international students who come from very, very warm countries, and then they have to adapt to the Ottawa climate. So uh, this transition period is, is a major stressor for students. And finally, I want to say that also we know campus connectedness, um, their, their feeling of connectedness, how connected they feel to their campus, to their, their peers, to their professors, can significantly buffer against the stress of university life. So we, you know, to summarize, we should care. We should be um, um, making significant effort to support our students um, because it, they, when we do so, it means that they, they perform better academically. So I guess there are two levels of it. There's one, what can the university do, which are things like providing counseling services and this and that. Um, but, uh, and then there's like the people uh, sort of on the ground, the, pr- the professors, the staff, um, 
who work who who inter, who who are like a for the frontline workers of the university, mm-hmm. I suppose, who interact with students. Um, it, let let me just ask you, like, if you know, if a professor were listening to this and they never really thought about it before, what is something that is typically not done but would have a large positive effect to help like a problem? What can a professor do to be a, to well, be sensitive to this and and help? Right. I th- I think uh, nothing's been studied systematically, to my knowledge, may have, but. Um, I know it's it's like any other population at risk, right? We need to uh, ally ourselves, right? We need to identify ourselves as an ally. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I do is I invite uh, the, stu- uh, the, the, the campus wellness group to come into my class at the beginning of the semester. They do a literally a five-minute blurb on how to access resources and care. They bring the therapy dogs, right? So Carlton is very lucky to have the therapy dogs. You can listen to one of our uh, episodes in the past uh, that touches on this specifically. But what that does, and this is this is my instinct, I haven't studied this systematically, is that I th- it, what it does is it signals to students. It, it is a gesture that is explicitly saying, I care about your mental health because I've invited this this group on campus to talk about it. And what that means is that you are welcome to talk to me and come and, and have a conversation with me if you're not doing well. I'm open to that. It doesn't mean I'm going to be your, so, your social worker. And that's very, very important that we as professors cannot take on a therapeutic role. That's not mm. what we're trained to do. But when we train ourselves as well with the, the knowing where the resources are to be found on campus, we can be that stepping stone to students to say, okay, so you, they so you sort of break us. the taboo. You right. break the stigma and the taboo so that they feel right. that, that you, you're not insensitive. You know, you might have like a chemistry professor who, who appears hard as nails and you just like feel, a student might feel sheepish about saying, oh, I, I'm having trouble sleeping. Uh, right. But if that professor were to actually have a part of their class where they acknowledge that Mental health is a something that is to be they're concerned about. At least they've you know you, the professor has broached the subject and the student can almost follow up. I think that's a great idea. Exactly. Now I did read a study um, about grades and stuff about and uh, there was an intervention. I'm trying to get a hold of the actual intervention, but like having like uh, se- more senior students come back and say, "Hey, I got a lot of bad grades, but I learned how to study better and things got better." Um, uh, I think that was like an empirical study that that gave a lot of students hope because I think a lot of students, um, you know, they they go to university and they're they're suddenly around their intellectual peers in a way that they might not have been in high school, like people who are of a similar intellectual ability, uh, and it's not as easy to get good grades, and they and they worry that they're the only one or something like that. Are grades and stress like a big source of the mental health problems that students have? Yes. So we know stress is very much related to mental health, period, right? We know stress can initiate the onset of mental health. It can exacerbate the or worsen symptoms. And it can also promote relapse if you already have an existing mental health challenge. And certainly students, um, because of that transition to university, is, is stressful. And in addition, their developmental age, right? So when we look at underlying hormonal and brain circuit changes, we know that this can unmask existing mental health challenges. Uh, and, and stress is can act as an epigenetic factor. I don't know if you know what epigenetic means. Well, I do, but let's explain it anyway. <laughs> So we know now that um, while we're all born with a specific set of genes, um, 
the genes can change in their activity. And what that means is that um, given certain environmental conditions, uh, that can promote um, certain genes from rapidly transcribing their proteins or actually stopping to transcription of the proteins. And ultimately what that means is it, it literally changes the circuits in your brain or in your body um, and it changes their, their activity, right? So stress, what we know, can unlock um, protein transcription and translation, meaning that it can, if you already have a vulnerability to a specific disease or disorder, it can unmask that, right? So um, we know university is stressful, right? And and in fact, there is a university stress scale. And this is one of the things that we give to our students when they come into the lab or they do online studies is we uh, give them a series of questions that ask them um, how often they experience certain stressors from never to sometimes frequently or constantly. And for example, in one of the studies that we ran last fall, uh, coursework demands, if students were asked, you know, how often you're experiencing stress related to coursework, 70% of our students said that they experienced the stressor constantly or frequently. So back to your class of 100, 70 of those students are saying that they're constantly or frequently stressed about your course. Hmm. Other things that they might be stressed about include things like st- study or work-life balance, financial uh, problems, which is a can be a big one, mental health concerns, or relationship stress, right? So uh, with their friends or family members or even their romantic relationships. Right, right. I, I, I think that's really important what you said about epigenetics. I just want to say a little bit more because this is important for understanding science and biology in general. A lot of people think about your genes as kind of like a blueprint for a building, that once the building is built, the blueprint doesn't matter anymore. Um, but that's absolutely not the way genes work. And genes will uh, express themselves, that's what they call it, like generating proteins, in response to environmental factors. So uh, many people have many genes that will never get expressed because they were just simply never put in that environment. So to talk about like, you know, the genetic, like nature nurture debate is way oversimplified because um, things that you experience can cause certain um, genes to be expressed. And like puberty is a perfect example of like, you know, it's a genetic thing, but it's not obviously not there in a baby, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great explanation. I, um, what I say now is it's no longer, it's not nature versus nurture. It's nature uh, uh, via nurture, right? right? So right. How, how, our environmental, how, how our environment changes impacts the way that we behave. Very simply, right? right? And that's, that's adaptive. If we didn't change to a changing environment, uh, we'd be dead. Yeah. So um, we did have an entire episode on stress where that Kim was the queen of, and that's an excellent episode. I recommend everybody listen to it. And we also had a episode on social networks, um, uh, virtual and real. Um, And we talked a little bit about how social connections can buffer against stress. Uh, You want to say some more about that in relation to student mental health? Yeah, for sure. I think... um we, based on that episode that we ran um, a number of months ago, I think what's, what I stressed at that point is that the quality of your social connections is one of the be- the biggest predictors of how well you are and how long you live. And certainly we can see this repeated in, in our student samples when we assess how socially connected they feel or how socially disconnected they feel. Uh, these things very much predict um, whether students are experiencing depressive or anxious symptoms. Um, and one thing I did want to mention as well related to that is how lonely people feel. And this we, we touched on in the era of COVID. And I want to, uh, in our episode on the psychology of COVID, 
And I want to really focus in on this now because Jaime Anisman, who I mentioned at the beginning, uh, one of my faculty members, have been studying loneliness for a number of years uh, in relation to health outcomes. And Robin McQuaid, uh, who's my collaborator, this is really where her research program um, focuses in on is understanding the link between loneliness and health outcomes. And so when we do survey our students, again, we have another questionnaire, that's the UCLA loneliness scale. Um, what we find is that fully half of our students, in fact, a little bit over half of our students experience are, are would be considered lonely. Is this, is this Carlton uh, data? This is Carlton data. Um, wow. and, and there's no significant difference between males and females. So they're, they're equally lonely, right? Mm. Um, but when what the interesting thing is when we analyze using fancy statistics to try to understand if that loneliness predicts their depression, their depressive symptoms, it, it absolutely does. So we have what's called a positive correlation. The more lonely a student feels, the more uh, the higher their depressive symptoms. And importantly, we see this relationship and we run what's called a moderation analysis, uh, that Robin is the queen of running these kinds of analyses. <laughs> uh, women, females, remember I told you males and females are equally lonely, but if females are lonely, they are more likely to show high depression with their loneliness. So social connections matter. And in particular, we see this with our female students that if they are more lonely, they feel, they feel worse. Do you feel powerless as a professor to do anything about that? I don't like. I don't. What, what kind of can a professor Absolutely do anything not. to help loneliness? No, no. I, I feel I, I I feel energized to create opportunities for students to have social connections, and I think that that's you know one thing that we do well in my department is we we create lots of organic uh, opportunities for students to to connect with one another, and, and based on knowing this data, it makes me more mindful of how I can create these spaces in, in my classroom, online, or even as a department, right? So our student societies have lots of functions. I make sure to invite students uh, when we have, we have like our meet the professor night uh, in my office hour. Like I'm very conscientious of, you know, bringing in students that otherwise might might feel uh, alone and, mm. and, and trying to get them to meet other people. So I'm always kind of, um, you know, like making making love connections, <laughs> <with myself. laughs> introducing people. Not love, but you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, Compassion like I, connections. I, yeah, for sure. And the one, the last thing I want to say about loneliness is: remember, I said that students are more likely. I think I said to drop out of university if they're with if they have mental health problems. That's something that Jaime found twenty years ago, and one of the things he found is that loneliness explains dropout rates above and beyond depression. So dropping variant, out of school. Yeah. So the students are more likely to not be retained in, in, in university if they're based more on their loneliness. If they're lonely and depressed, that's like a double whammy. Right. So yeah. I don't know if you can. Yeah, you can appreciate that, that the loneliness is, is very, very powerful. Wow. So we uh, also had an episode on trauma with uh, the esteemed uh, therapist, Matthew Rippy Young. Um, but does having had traumatic experiences in your past make you more likely to have mental health disorders? It does. And that's one of the most powerful predictors of a later life mental health disorder is if we experience trauma, in particular early life trauma at the time when the brain is kind of being hard, uh, the, the software is kind of being hard, uh, laid down. Mm. And so um, this is, you know, my whole early research career was looking at this in animal models. Uh, and now 
Robin McQuaid, my collaborator, this is our one thing that we really do have in common is we're both really interested in exploring how trauma um, relates to mental health disorders later in life. And now that's why I've gone into more human research with her as a collaborator. And okay, so what's the, uh, there's a relationship between mental health problems and substance use, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, am I correct that cannabis and alcohol are, are some of the largest substances students use? Yep, you're right. Um, What's the relationship there between cannabis, alcohol, and mental health? Sure. Well, first I'll I'll indicate, I think it's really important to mention that our students have experienced trauma, right? A lot of people think trauma is quite rare. Um, But again, another survey tool that we use is it's the early trauma inventory. And when we ask students again, and this is anonymous um, uh, on our online or in-person surveys, when we ask them, like, if they to indicate whether they've experienced certain traumatic um, experiences, they fully a third, you know, roughly around a third have experienced some form of trauma, right? So things like um, if a family member has a, a suffers severe from a severe mental health disorder or witnessing violence to a family member, divorce okay. of a parent is considered a trauma. So there's a number of these traumatic events and students, you know, a third of, you know, back to our 100 students, about 30 of them will have had some form of trauma. And Amazing. yes, as you were saying, mo- you know, and this is kind of my major theoretical approach to the study of substance use, is that trauma sets up the brain so that they experience um, these negative I- effects in the form of like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then often what they do, what individuals may do is they resort to uh, drug use as a form of coping, right? Because alcohol and cannabis and opioids very nicely uh, reduce these symptoms, right? So um, we know, again, students are using substances like cannabis and alcohol. I'm sure most of us can think about alcohol as being one of the top substances that are used by by students. Um, but there's some good data to say that when you look at substance use patterns, University-age students, so people around 20, 24 years of age, have the highest rates of past-year alcohol and other drug use in Canada. And that's um, according to the CTADS survey, the the Canadian Tobacco and Other Drugs Survey. And um, so they consume more alcohol. They're more likely to exceed low-risk drinking guidelines compared to those that are slightly younger or slightly older. Uh, And they also have the highest rates of past-year cannabis use. So fully a third of students uh, have used cannabis in the last year, again, compared to other age groups. And then the other thing that's meaningful is not only are they using, but they also have, they experience uh, a lot of harms, right? So um, again, looking at some other surveys, um, if students have drank alcohol in the last year, about 30%, a third of them uh, forgot where they were or what they did, right? So they're experiencing blackouts. Uh, 16% have injured themselves. And while drunk, about 6% have seriously considered suicide. And then uh, my husband's company, the organization, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, in 2019 reported that hospitalizations in Canada due to substance use are highest amongst individuals aged 18 to 24 years old. And hospital stays, interestingly, were highest for cannabis use. Highest for cannabis use. Let's think about that, Mm. right? A lot of people don't think that cannabis has harms. It absolutely does. And, and you know, I could go on and on. But uh, a lot of that is like people are taking like much higher doses uh, than they thought, usually because of edibles. 
and they experience like really negative side effects. Right. And I have to mention that we also have an episode on cannabis. <laughs> there we go. We have all the, all the touch points. Yeah, we've been, the, the podcast has been around for a while now, so uh, we, we have a, a, quite a library to refer people back to. Um, how much of this, Kim, do you know, um, you know, we're talking about student mental health, but is this, is this like increased use of substance use just because they're young? Like do people who are not, who are not students at this age, are they also the biggest users and abusers? Um, or is it, is it something about being in university that... So the, da- the statistics I was just talking about are regardless of university. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so they, those are just by age. Um, right, right. But okay. I do have statistics that are university students. So, okay, so have you seen uh, similar patterns in your own research? Yes. So uh, we do, again, one of our questionnaires that we run is something called the QDIT or the Cannabis Use Disorder Inventory. And so, again, you're asking students, like, how often do they use cannabis? And if so, how often? And about 50% of our students, and we've run the survey a number of times, and it's pretty systematic. We see the same thing, same kind of pattern of findings. About 50% of students do not use at all. So they're not using cannabis. And then, um, again, 50% are using. Mo- you know, the, the majority of those are, are using infrequently, so monthly or less, or about two to four times a month. And then a small proportion are using what we would say quite problematically, so two to three times a week. And daily users um, is about 7%, um, which would be considered quite problematic use. And it's important to mention that there was a recent uh, meta-analysis that was published that showed that of people who use cannabis, so this is, you know, your, your denominator changes, right? So it's not of everybody. It's specifically that 50% that are using. About mm. a sixth of them uh, will go on to develop a cannabis use disorder. And our statistics, again, bear in mind, this is not published yet, and we have to run further analyses. But we see about a fifth of our students that would, would qualify for a diagnosis of a cannabis use disorder. Okay, so... so- just let's remind our, our audience, like cannabis use disorder, I think when most people think of drug disorders, they think of like addiction. Does this mean pot addiction? Is that the same thing? Mm-hmm. So the current edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which was published in 2013, removed the diagnostic um, term uh, drug dependence and drug abuse. Mm-hmm. And they now use uh it's it, the broad category is substance use disorder, which is what we would consider equivalent to addiction, although the word addiction is not a diagnostic term, right? So you I can't see. be diagnosed with an addiction, but hmm. what we see as a substance use disorder would resemble addiction, right? So and for it to each, count as a disorder, it's got to interfere with your life in some way, right? Correct. Yeah. So the, yeah, okay. that's the main feature of, of really any mental health disorder, according to the DSM, is that it has to impact your role functioning. Right. So um, you have to have experienced significant psychological distress as manifest by, you know, with addictions. It's around 11 criteria that are behavioral. So things like okay. your um you're using more than you originally intended. You're having what's called diminished role functioning. So you're not going to work or going to school or socializing. So it's impacting your your, your functional uh, ability and your wellness. Right. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of people use substances of various kinds. Are there particular factors that make people more at risk to develop a disorder of, say, yes. cannabis use disorder? Yeah. And so that's really my area of focus is on cannabis. And so Robin and I... Robin McQuaid and I have, um, again, run a study. She started the study last year, and I kind of 
piggybacked onto it. Um, and we co-supervise that and honor students. So Veronique Rowley, um, shout out to her. She was an amazing uh, thesis student. And what she was really looking at is one of the things Rob and I are interested in, which is genetics. So um, just a little bit of a sidebar here on understanding genes. So um, as many of you may or may not know, we each inherit a copy of a gene from a mom, from our parents, right? So mom and dad. And then uh, your, what your gene is, is a composed of a number of different what are called amino acid base pairs. And that's really not important for you, you know, to know what exactly that is. But it's kind of like the letters of an alphabet, right? Uh, so A, B, C, D, D, E, F uh, codes for a specific gene. But what's really kind of cool is that human genetic, um, the, the genetic code has a small amount of variation such that you can inherit A, B, C, D, E, F from mom uh, and A, B, C, D, E, G from dad. So that small change in that little amino acid base pair doesn't change what the gene does, but it changes the activity of the gene, right? Mm. And so we call these single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And uh, they're, they're essentially small. Again, a polymorph means different shape. So small changes in the shape of the gene. So you have these like short or long copies of the gene. And so some of the, so some of the variations are quite common. Some of them are more rare. And one of the things that Veronique did uh, as her thesis is she, um, we took the saliva of um, uh, some of our our students that were running, uh, that were participating in our study. And uh, she extracted the DNA uh, from the saliva and then we sent it off to a company in Quebec. And what we were interested in looking at is if students have small variations in specific proteins that code for the endocannabinoid system, which is our natural cannabinoid system that um, we produce things like anandamide um, that acts like THC in the brain, uh, which is the main psychoactive ingredient of cannabis. So go back to episode three, I believe, to find out more about the endocannabinoid system. But essentially, there's these small variations in things like the receptor that binds anandamide or would bind THC. And what we found is that, remember, we have students that have experienced trauma and students that have experienced low amounts of trauma. If students have experienced high degree of early life trauma and they have a specific copy of the gene for our the cannabinoid receptor um, that binds again THC or uh, anandamide. Uh, they are more likely to experience cannabis uh, dependence, so they have higher scores on that Q-tip, which is pretty cool. So, uh, depending on your genes. And whether you've experienced trauma, which acts as a stressor, has an epigenetic effect, and uh, your ge- genetic inheritance puts you more or less at risk. Okay. So, How okay. complicated was that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So students have lots of stress, okay? And many of them experience trauma, and then many of them are using substances to help cope with it. This podcast is being recorded during Canada's first wave of coronavirus and let's hope it's the last but um we know it's at least the first um can we expect you know what do you what do you look what do you expect we're gonna our fall semester of 2020 is going to be all online so more potential isolation what what are you predicting is gonna how's how's covid19 the pandemic going to affect student mental health and all this stuff well we think that it's gonna enhance or increase mental health problems and then concomitant increase uh, with men, uh, with co- coping with substances problematically. And, we, you know, this is prediction is based on 
what we know about stress vulnerability, right? Have you heard of something called the multi-hit hypothesis? No. No. So the multi-hit hypothesis, it's it's using a number of different um, theoretical frameworks. Uh, so, for example, you can think about it in in terms of immune system functioning. But we like it's it's one of the theoretical frameworks for understanding how stress can uh, impact neural circuitry and, and functioning. So multi-hit meaning if an organism has experienced stress, 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 high stress, high stress, high stress from multiple different uh, inputs, right? External stressors, internal stressors, you might be sick, you're getting a divorce. It, it, for, it increasingly puts somebody at risk for health problems, right? And so already you've got the multi-hit of the student population that have experienced transitional university stressors, coursework demands, financial stressors, and then you add in COVID, right? And then so what you've got here is concerns about the economy, right? Um, our students mm. that are graduating may be graduating into the, the, the worst ec- economic situation since the, uh, the Depression, right? Uh, and we're around World War I, World War II. Uh, they've got food insecurity issues. Um, we're seeing that um, with students in particular, they're you know they're already in debt and they may not be able to afford food. Um, crowding, right? They're living at home. Maybe they're living in environments that are not conducive to uh, focus and motivation and and goal output. And then, as you mentioned, social isolation. And the government, in fact, the Canadian government has indeed identified students as an at-risk population. If you go onto the Government of Canada website, you can see they identify Indigenous peoples, they identify people with disabilities, and students are also uh, in there as a population where they're trying to provide more financial support. Um, So... You know, we have designed a study. We're looking systematically at how students are experiencing the stress of COVID and how they're coping with the stress of COVID to try to capture um, proportionally um, whether we're seeing increases in in mental health and problematic substance use. But early data, so you know, there's lots of people that are collecting statistics to look at this. And and one of these organizations is the Canadian uh, Center on Substance Use and Addiction, which. Um, as one of our uh, one of my community partners, and what they found already is that about twenty one percent of individuals aged eighteen to thirty four, uh, and about twenty five percent of those thirty five to fifty four. So you can see um, a slight differences, but not too much. Have significantly they report significantly increasing the amount of alcohol they drank during the COVID pandemic. So we're seeing already people mm-hmm. are drinking more. Again, these are not specific to university students, but it is that age group. And the most common reasons for reporting increased alcohol consumption is lack of a regular schedule, boredom, and stress, right? Mm. And then back to cannabis, StatsCan has reported about 20% increase in cannabis sales, uh, which we can kind of say, like, there's also issues of, like, are people buying more to stockpile, right? Are they worried that, you know, their supply is going to run out? Or are they just consuming a lot more, right? We can't parse that out from that data. Um, And every province and territory in Canada has reported increased cannabis sales in March 2020. The last thing I want to point out, quite worrisome trend, is we're seeing increased um, opioid-related overdose deaths. Um, and this is really, really worrisome, in particular in BC. I don't know if you saw Bonnie Henry's um, quite emotive 
um, uh, she gave a, a news uh, cast on this, um, very tearful at one point, uh, reporting how this escalation in overdose deaths um, uh, due to opioid-related poisoning or toxicity. And we think that's because people might be using more, and I say we, it's not me, huh? people say it's, it's because uh, they may be using more on their own, right? Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be socially isolating, right? So you're not exactly using in a context where there's other folks that are around. So Therese Tam, she she tweeted about this um, and she's talked a lot about harm reduction approaches and she's urging Canadians that are opioid users to call a friend ahead of time and make sure that they're, there's somebody that knows that they're using, which I think is a wonderful harm reductionist approach. Now, we don't know, I mean, the statistics on how many students are using opioids, I'm not well, I should, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know that, but it's one of the lesser use substances among university populations. But I think it's really important in when we're talking mental health, we're talking about um, students, um, problematic substance use, it, you know, we need to be mindful that opioid related overdoses are on the rise. Wow. Okay. So universities are scrambling to, as many businesses are, to prepare for uh, how to deal with this. Uh, is there anything universities can be doing to prepare for it well? I think we, well, uh, I mean, as you've only had like twenty-five meetings about this, haven't you, kid? I know, right? (laughs) Well, yes, and I, you know, I can, I can say that Carlton is we we do fairly well. I'm really proud to be at Carlton um, at an institution that really does look at student mental health and prioritizes it. Not that other universities aren't, but I just am not on the inside. Uh, And I think there are, you know, the strategy is really how do you pivot all this care online, right? How do you take in-person counseling services and pivot it online? And that is the challenge. That is the major challenge. And I would say um, we need to be mindful of those touch points with the professors, right? We need to include the academic ranks in how we prepare for and ensure our circle of care with students. Because I can tell you, as a professor, I get to know my students fairly well, even in classes where there's 150, 200 students. And I can tell when somebody is not coming to class regularly. I can tell if somebody slumped in their seat. Um, Again, with all those, you know, subtle and not so subtle messaging that I I have opportunities to have with my students, those things will be lost. So I think we need to really think about creative and innovative ways that we can be continuing to reach out to our students and provide those social connections that are so healthy and so necessary to buffer against the ill effects of stress. The one thing I did want to emphasize is issues around equity, diversity, and inclusivity. So uh, one worrying statistic says that 85% of students that seek on-campus counseling are white, heterosexual females. We have a very diverse campus. Carlton's not unique in that regard. We are clearly not meeting the mark when it comes to providing supportive care to students who may not, may be from racialized populations, maybe queer, for example, or even males. So I think that is a really, really critical issue that we need to be facing, um, particularly in light of the fact that we know that folks that come from uh, more oppressed groups are more likely to be disproportionately affected by the stressors of COVID. So we need to be caring for our students um, and ensuring diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Right. Well, what about the students themselves? Uh, I'm sure a lot of stressed students are listening to this podcast. What What are some of the most effective steps they can take to help care for their own mental health and for maybe the, the people that are around them? 
I would say the best thing that you can do for yourself is focus on what you can control, right? There's a lot of things that we cannot control around us. We can't control the next wave of COVID. We can't control people wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. But what we can control is our sleep patterns, uh, uh, getting a healthy diet and exercising, which we know are three of the four pillars of good mental health, right? So really make sure that you're going out for walks, exercising as best as you can, ensuring healthy sleep hygiene, get good adequate rest, nourish yourself, nourish your body, which nourishes your brain. And the last pillar of good mental health is social connections. So make sure you're reaching out to others in your social circle. Don't be afraid to say you need help. Um, And don't be afraid to step up and speak out if you think that somebody is not doing well. Empower yourselves with knowledge. Know um, how to recognize the signs of depression, how to recognize the signs of anxiety. We'll be putting lots of resources on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website that can arm you with some um, really good ways in which you can have a conversation with a friend that you think is not doing well. That's great. So, well, let's en- let's end with like a, a encouragement to the uh, students who are going to be struggling their way through school, especially during COVID nineteen. That you're not alone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, things get better, and there are resources out there to help you. You know, if you reach out and ask for help, you'll be shocked how the stories come out of the woodwork just by you know broaching the subject of uh, feeling down or anything like that. Exactly. Your friends care. We care as your professors. Reach out to somebody if you are struggling. Great. Thanks, Kim. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science, and made possible, in part, by leap years, preventing winter from turning into summer every 400 years. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.